Welcome to everyone. So this is the Sunday morning sound of Dhamma, Sunday sound of Dhamma, and that means we'll do just about 10 minutes or so of meditation together, and then I'm going to offer a Dhamma talk, and then we'll have a bit of time for some Q&A or some reflections at the end. And uh, so this morning... I think we're going to just do a mindfulness of breathing meditation. And so you can begin by settling into your meditation posture. I like to begin with some gentle movement of the body or of the head. And allowing the body to come into a balanced, upright position. Releasing the belly and sensing the natural stability of the body. And perhaps by now you've encountered the sensations of the breath, breathing the body. You can just rest your attention right there on the sensations of the breath.
paying particular attention to the pauses between the parts of the breath. No need to change them, to make them longer or shorter. Just resting the attention right there in the pauses.
And perhaps having seen the pauses, you can also observe the start of each part of the breath. Those natural moments of impermanence, a shift from stillness into movement. Tassa Bhagavato Adato Samma Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Adato Samma Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Adato Samma Sambuddhasa Bhutang Dhammang Sankhang Namasamihi So this week we had, in some traditions, in some countries, a celebration of Buddha's enlightenment. December 8th is known in Japanese as Rohatsu. And that means literally the eighth day of the 12th month. And it is a day when folks in some Buddhist traditions, uh, have some special ceremonies and food and remember the Buddha, the historical Buddha. So I want to tell a little bit of his story this week, today. And, uh, 
to really begin by saying that sometimes the Buddha can feel very remote. He is a person that lived a very long time ago, maybe roughly 2,500 or 2,600 years ago in northern India and close to the current border with Nepal, a place where many of us have never been. And so many legends and stories have been told about him. But I really hope that today, at least, and perhaps going forward, that you can think about what the Buddha as a person really means to you as a person. So I want to tell a little bit about his story. So. He was born to a family of nobility. Some people would say a prince, but they didn't really have a country the way we think about it now. But he was born into a family that was the ruling class of that area of northern India where they lived. And it said that there were many miracles around his birth. So he was born in a garden in Lumbini, in what is now Nepal, not in India, because his mother was, when she was getting ready to give birth, she did, as is traditionally done in many cultures, she was on her way back to home to her mom. So the women knew that they had a certain wisdom around this. And so she was on her way, but she didn't quite make it there. And they stopped in the garden, and she gave birth to a baby boy. And there are all sorts of stories about special things that happened at his birth. But an important part of the story is that uh, they went back home, and his mom passed away. His mother died when he was seven days old. And so he was raised by Pajabati, by his aunt, his mother's sister. So already we have in the Buddha's story, some suffering, some difficulty, and some understanding that all of us, even if his mother had lived, even if Maya was her name, Maha Maya, she was known as the great Maya because she was, as I said, of the ruling class there. Uh, even if she had lived, you know, there was a great deal of Kindness that goes into raising all of us. Somebody had to be kind enough for us to grow up and be here. And so 
the Buddha had this kindness that his aunt decided to help raise him. And uh, Pajapati goes on to be, later goes on to be a very important person. She goes on to be the first Buddhist nun. Besides being important in the Buddha's life. But he was a human being, so he grew up and he went through all kinds of things. They taught him archery and uh, he fell in love and all kinds of things happened. And he had he had uh, a life of very a lot of comfort, apparently, as many elephants as he wanted. <laughs> And then what happened? Then something happened that was a big shift for him. And it, it said that he saw the four messengers. So he went out of the palace one day with one of the folks that would have been caring for him, one of the charioteers. And they went out and they saw an old person and a sick person and a corpse, which would not have been that unusual in India at that time. They didn't bury people underground the way we try to do now. But he saw those three. And then he also saw an ascetic. He saw a person who had given up the regular style of life and was a spiritual seeker of some sort also very common in india particularly at that time but it was this moment he tells later he tells the story that seeing this these four messengers was a very pivotal moment for him. And so the way that we can understand this is that he suddenly realized his own mortality and the mortality of everyone around him. It hit home in a new way. Yeah. And we ourselves are faced with human mortality a lot these days, right? I mean, just for example, like you hear the sound of an ambulance. And if you choose to be, you could be faced with human mortality by hearing that sound. You would be thinking about someone who was old or who was sick or who was dying, who's in that ambulance. Hmm. Or maybe you have your own health problems or maybe you read about the wars that are happening in the world or the climate issues. 
all kinds of ways that we are met with human mortality. And what the Buddha's story asks us to do is to take that information and let it motivate us. Let it be a reminder to us that we can turn our lives to something that is important, that will help the world. That's what the Buddha did when he realized mortality. He said, oh, hold on a minute. Now I realize that I don't have forever. And I want to use my life in a way that's noble, that is going to help the world, that is going to help me also. So he realized that those things represented a choice, not something that needed to be overwhelming or something that could be denied, right? But a truth that we could face in a way that was skillful and helpful. So he saw the four messengers and he set everything down and he left the palace, gave his horse away, cut off all his hair and went off to be a spiritual seeker. Now, this part of the story is also interesting because the Buddha actually had to work to wake up. It wasn't like something automatic that was going to happen for him. Right? He had to go out and find the path. And this is also something that I think we need to, we, we could benefit from thinking about it for ourselves this way as well, that we are finding our path. Even the Buddha had to work at it some. So we also are going to need to put some work into it. Right? So he set off, and one of the things that he did was that he went to practice with a couple of the most well-known meditation masters of his time. Alara Kalama, Anudaka Ramaputta. And it's said that he really mastered those forms of meditation, so much so that they invited him to teach their groups. And they were very, very peaceful forms of meditation. He said there was a, a form of meditation that led to this feeling of nothingness or this feeling of great stillness. So... Even the Buddha had his teachers. Well, he had some teachers. But he went through those things. He went through those meditation schools. But he then ultimately left. He ultimately said, you know, this doesn't really resolve the problem. This doesn't really resolve the question. That's the burning question in my heart. So we know that just being quiet 
just forcing the mind to be quiet, actually, because that was the style of the teaching, and we'll learn more about that in a minute. Just making the mind be quiet isn't the answer. That's not the point of what we're doing. When Buddhism says that ultimate peace is possible, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean just spacing out and avoiding life, running away from the palace. That's not it. Not to say that those folks weren't very good meditators. They probably were. In fact, after his awakening, the first people that the Buddha wanted to go talk to was them, Alar Kalama and Nudaka Ramaputta. He wanted to go talk to them about what he had seen as the next step. But unfortunately, both of them had already passed away. Both of them had died by the time the Buddha had his great awakening. So the Buddha had these teachers, and instead he said, well, this isn't working, so I'm going to go try some other things. I'm going to go try my own way. So the first thing that he tried was he tried more mind control. Okay, so this kind of meditation wasn't going, wasn't the answer, so I'm going to try even more mind control. And I'm going to read to you just a tiny bit of the way that he says, the way he speaks about later, speaks about this practice that he did after. He says, yes, I went to this place, Eruruela, and I found this beautiful place of land, and I sat down in the forest at the root of a tree, and then I clenched my teeth, and I pressed my tongue against the roof of my mouth, and I overpowered my mind with my mind, dominating, constraining the mind. Sweat poured from all of my pores. (laughs) Does that sound like the end of suffering to you guys? No, probably not. Probably not. But that's what he thought. He thought, oh, more control. I need more control. So when you feel that in your practice, you think about that. Uh, when you think, oh, I need more control, I need to grab onto this breath a little tighter, then you remember that. Uh, remember that. That wasn't the way. He ultimately stepped away from that. But he still hadn't given up on control, the Buddha. So the next thing he tried to do was control his breath. And he would hold his breath until his whole head felt like it was bursting. That's what he said. And he he would do all these difficult breath practices. Again, because he felt like there was something about controlling, maybe controlling the body in this way that would help. And nowadays, to me, that sounds a little off, right? That sounds almost even kind of funny. Like, why would you think that holding your breath would help you have a spiritual awakening? But that was part of the culture of his time, right? 
And later on, the Buddha goes on to say something about this as well. Not only that he found that this wasn't helpful, but he goes on to speak about really being selective about the folks that we listen to, the folks that we relate to on our spiritual path. And he says, really, really find the folks that are wise. Really find the folks whose teaching helps you to feel more compassion and more peace and more wisdom in your life. And follow those folks. Don't follow the ones that are popular or the ones that everybody else is following or the ones that have a longer tradition or any of those things, right? That's not why I'm telling you about the Buddha, because he was from so long ago. I'm telling you about the Buddha because in my life, in my experience, and in many people that I know, their experience, his teachings do lead to more peace and more compassion, more wisdom in my life. Right? So this is an important point. So he then steps away from that, but he still hasn't given up on control. The Buddha was, you can imagine, he was a very, very determined person. And then he stops eating. He eats very, very, very little. He becomes very emaciated. Some There's some beautiful and, and interesting kind of shocking, actually, statues of artists imagining what the Buddha looked like at this time. He talks about how his body became, his skin became very, very dark and black because he's so malnourished. Yeah. But finally, finally, he realizes, I could even die doing this kind of practice and it wouldn't solve my problem. It wouldn't solve that burning question. So he thinks back to in his life, what is it, what is it that might help? What is it that might lead toward more peace and more compassion? And he remembers a moment where he was a child and he was sitting quietly under a tree and he entered into a kind of meditative state and it was a meditative state based on joy. Ah, he said to himself, maybe that's the way to go. So it's another pivotal moment and another really important teaching for us on our path. Joy is a critical ingredient. Joy is a critical ingredient. Not just because it helps keep us going, but because it actually helps the mind to be willing to sit down and observe itself. Observe what's true about this life. So another really important thing for us to remember on our own paths, right? When your path starts to feel like a grind, then you can ask yourself, okay, where's the joy? How can it bring the joy back into my path? Right? Critical moment. And that 
turns the whole thing for him. And he starts eating, and he bathes, and he goes refreshed, and he sits down under the Bodhi tree. That's now famous in Gaia, what's known as Bodh Gaya now. Gaya, the place of awakening, Bodh. And he sits down and he says, well, I'm going to sit here until I wake up. <laughs> and very, there are very stories about what happens at this point for him. Stories about maybe he was helped by the earth goddess. I love that part of a way of bringing women into this story. Uh, again, in a positive way. That's part of the Thai Buddhist tradition and sometimes also heard in the Sri Lankan Buddhist traditions, the, the story about the earth goddess helping the Buddha in his last moments before awakening. Or there's also the story about Mara challenging him, asking him, who are you to wake up? Hmm. But ultimately, what the Buddha speaks about is that he sits down and he goes through a process of learning about karma, goes through a process of learning about karma and how karma worked in his own past and in other people's lives and generally, more generally known as the dependent origination, which I went over last week. And you can go, you can. Listen to that a little bit on YouTube if you missed it. That was the short version last week. But he has this wonderful, beautiful enlightenment. Yay, wonderful. Wonderful. And that would be a wonderful celebration all by itself. But then what happens? Then the Buddha gets up eventually after blessing out, as said, for about seven weeks. <laughs> Took a little vacation. Enjoy, right? After all that hard work. He gets up and he goes to speak to the five colleagues who had left him behind when he started eating because they said he was a slacker. <laughs> and he goes and he gives them what is known as the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the first turning of the wheel, the discourse on the first turning of the wheel. And of course, the first part of that discourse is mortifying the body or indulging completely having your whole life be indulgement and sense pleasures neither one of those two extremes are skillful right so right away he starts out by telling them something that he learned about his own path and then he goes on to tell the four noble truths and i'll say more about the four noble truths next week but what i want to say at this point is that 
Kondanya, one of his companions, and ultimately all five of his companions are then able to also have spiritual awakenings very shortly after the Buddha's awakening because of hearing his teaching. And this is the final lesson that I want to leave you with because the Buddha did not get up from the seat of awakening and say, I am the perfect person now, and I am the only person who can do this. That's the opposite of what he said. He got up from that seat and said to anybody who would listen, you can do this. Here is the way. This is the path. I am telling you this because you can do it. I wouldn't tell you if you couldn't do it. These are all quotes. These are all exactly his words, as far as we know from the records we have. He spent 45 years walking around India barefoot in his robes, receiving food that he had begged for every day, and teaching anybody who would listen about how to do what he had done. As he was getting close to his death, his attendant, Venerable Ananda, said, well, what should we do? You know, what should we do with your remains and everything? We need to do something special and whatever. And he said, bah, you need to wake up. That's what you need to do. That is the way to honor a Buddha, is to listen to his teaching and do this practice. And what were his final words? His final words, as far as we know, Vaya Dhamma Sankara Apamadena Sampadita. Constructed things are disappearing. Fulfill the way with diligence or fulfill the way with care. All constructed things are disappearing. That's you, this body this world around you, all your loved ones, this very earth, all constructed things are disappearing. So fulfill the way with diligence. Don't waste your time. Make those choices that will keep you on the path, that will bring that joy into your life, that will bring that wisdom into your life. You have it. You have received that blessing. So make the most of it. What a beautiful gift. Congratulations. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.